Welcome to today's edition of Disability Inc. I'm Jean Mizutani here from Include NYC and I have the pleasure to be with disability rights pioneer Peggy Gross. Peggy, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me, Jean, and thank you, Include, for these podcasts. Aww. They are such an important way to get vital information out to parents, individuals with disabilities, and service providers. Really is a service. Thank you for saying that. We really appreciate it. Um, all you listeners may know that Peggy was the creator and director of travel training for the New York City Department of Education for students with significant cognitive and physical disabilities. The goal was to train them to travel independently to and from school. But what would you say if I told you that we are recording this interview on 9-11 in New York City to find out what happened to all those students who were on the streets and subways of New York City when the planes hit and the chaotic aftermath where all transportation was disrupted all over the city. Anyone who was here that day knows what I'm talking about. Wow. Set the scene for us, Peggy. Could you please first describe to us the kinds of students that were participating in the travel training program that day? Oh, well, the kinds of students were varied like people are varied. There were students with intellectual disabilities, young people with autism, some with emotional disabilities, some with multiple disabilities, some who had hearing impairments. We do not, travel training does not provide travel training to individuals who are blind because they receive orientation and mobility. But the active ones in travel training on that day typically had either a cognitive-related or hearing-related impairment. However, there were many other students in schools in all five boroughs who had been trained by the travel training program and who covered a wide range of disabilities. Right, the full spectrum, as it were. Yep. What kind of skills are taught in travel training? Life skills. Life skills. How do you live? How do you learn what it is like to be treated just like everybody else? And how do you accept being treated just like everybody else without anything special being offered to you? I learned that from a young man who said to me one time, who was having a difficult time learning to travel, it's the only time I'm treated just like everybody else. Oh, wow. So when you teach someone with a significant disability how to travel, you have to keep in mind there ain't going to be special treatment on the subway in rush hour. You will be treated like everyone else. No one will worry about the temperature controls. No one will worry about the noise. No one will worry about keeping you waiting. No one will be worried about you having a seat. You are just another human being who's going from one place to another on public transit. It was never more evident than on 9-11. Wow, so I've often heard you say that the most important thing in travel training is planning for emergencies. Emergencies are going to happen. 
and it's a full range of what you mean by emergency. It can be a delayed train where you are standing and waiting on a platform as it gets more and more crowded for a half hour and you don't know what is going on and just more people keep waiting. It can be where a subway goes from express to local or local to express missing your stop. It can go where a train has to stop running and you have to get out and take an emergency shuttle bus. It can be buses that cannot run on streets because there was a water main break. It can be you can't find your metro card. What do you do? It can be your telephone isn't working. How do you notify someone? It can be anything. It can be we did not prepare for emergencies like 9-11. That was not in anyone's mind. However, to teach someone how to travel is to teach them your routine will be disrupted and what becomes routine are disruptions in a pattern of travel. So how do you handle all of these things? So travel training has to build into its core what happens when you get lost? I don't think anybody has ever traveled who hasn't gotten lost. You've fallen asleep, you got off somewhere else. <laughs> you are listening to music and you completely forgot where you're going and you got on the wrong train because it came in, you didn't look. You were waiting for a bus for a long time, the weather is lousy, you get on the bus, it's going in the wrong direction. And there you are, all of a sudden, and you have no idea where you are. So what do you do? We ask for help, we look around, we check our surroundings, we do all of these little things that help us get where we're going or get the help we need. Unfortunately, if you are born with a significant disability, you are denied the opportunity to experience that in little bits as you grow up. All of us are so concerned about being sure everything goes okay because that we forget life is not everything going okay. So when you deprive someone of that experience, that is typical for most of us as we get older. And then we say, well, they can't do it because they don't know what to do it. They had no reason to learn. We right. kept them from learning. So travel training has to build in missing your stop, the wrong door working. How do you get help when you need it? What happens when someone ignores you? What happens if you don't understand what someone is saying right. to you? Where do you get help? All of those things are what we all have to do. And it's so much broader than just travel training. I mean, it really is an umbrella for life and life skills. So we started this interview talking about 9-11, and I know that you were at work that morning. Tell us about it. 
I'm like this morning on 9-11. That 9-11 was absolutely beautiful. The sky was a magnificent blue without a cloud in it. I was on my way to a hiring hall because there were vacancies in travel training and there was a hiring hall and I was meeting a teacher, Roseanne Bach, at the hiring hall so that we could interview and try to recruit people for the positions. My husband said to me, you better hear this. And I heard that an airplane had gone in to the World Trade Center North. We all thought it was an accident. My first reaction is, you can't go to the hiring hall. There's going to be transit problems. Have to be available to be sure that we know what is going on with the students, with the trainers, with the families. How is transit operating? Where is it affected? How safe is everyone? How do we get the word out? So I went into the district office on 23rd Street and 1st Avenue. Then the second plane went into a building and everyone knew it was not an accident. I would not say there was chaos. I would say there was disbelief. There was tremendous anxiety and worry and concern about everything. Will there be another attack? What about the young people? The Chancellor at the time, understandably, because we do have a thousand schools from kindergarten through high school, you can't go home unless your parent comes for you. Well, your parents in Manhattan, nothing can come out of Manhattan into another borough. Your parent is in Brooklyn, you go to school in Manhattan, they can't get there. How do you how do you handle that? So the decision was made, disregard. <laughs> follow transit, follow reality. Are there more attacks imminent? Are there more threats? What is happening with transit? What are the dangers? What are the imminent dangers that you have to look at? The first thing I did when I got into the office was to contact all the travel training offices and they were in all five boroughs, a couple of offices in each borough, to be sure that someone was there. In one of the primary sites in downtown Manhattan on Houston Street, the teacher was in Staten Island that day. But we do have master travel trainers there. It was a new principal was her first year as a principal. I called her and told her what had happened and told her all the transit lines in her areas would be disrupted, were disrupted. They might want to have somebody get out and start to look on the street for any youngsters they had who were travelers coming in and that uh, she could go to the travel training office and the folks in there would help out. One of the people coming in, one of the really master travel trainers ever, 
was on a bus with the student and saw the airplane go into the bus. So you had the student upset, the trainer upset. That was in one site. And in other sites throughout the city, they had to start to make contact. They had to follow transit very, very closely. And it was not as connected as it is today. So you really had to watch on things. And then if someone was not in school, whom you had travel trained, you had to call to see had they left their home. Were they en route? What had happened? And to continue to have very close communication with the school administration and all the sites, because this in District 75, a high school may have 14 work sites scattered throughout the city. And one of the high schools did have a work site a couple blocks from the World Trade Centers. But fortunately, everybody did it. So we knew everybody who had left their home that morning was safe and in school. That was good. <laughs> Yes, and it was. Transit was working. Yes, but then, but then you had to think about the dismissal. So there were a lot of all of the youngsters who were currently in travel training. Their school buses are suspended while they're in training. So we had to, with the school, contact all the bus, call the parents tell them we were going to arrange to have their sons and daughters go home on the school bus and then contact the school buses to make sure that they put it in to their information so the drivers would know they would be taking home an additional person that day. Then we had to look at all of the independent travelers and talk to them about what happened. And we had to look at their alternate routes. In travel training, every individual student has a primary route that is considered the safest and the most appropriate for that individual to travel. Then there is a secondary route, which is an alternate in case something happens to the primary route. Every youngster receives training on the alternate route and part of the training on the alternate route is you're not as familiar with this. Do your safety skills transfer from the primary route to the alternate? And so we looked at the alternates to see which routes were running. What additional connections would have to be made? And then cards were made up for the students indicating what that route would be. And their parents were notified and informed so that at dismissal time, if their regular route wasn't working, their alternate route was a possibility for them. One young man who was in a high school inclusion program was on West 14th Street. Young man has, is on the spectrum. He has autism. He participated in alternate assessment. He 
lived on Coney Island. <laughs> now, that's really far. That is very <laughs> far, and he had a complicated route at regular times. But we had done many, many different routes with him because he was the type of individual that you wanted to test his skills in many situations. So any possible route, no matter how long it would take, had been used to see how does he handle. And one of the reasons we had done that is when he had been being observed one day to see if he, um, that's a test where you have someone followed by someone they don't know and they think they're alone. Uh -huh. A homeless person had come up to him and asked him for money and he gave it. So we had to work with him about more appropriate things and if you're in different places, you're different awareness, you're different alertness. So he had a lot of experience. His mother, wonderful, wonderful woman, uh, had great faith in her son had great respect for him. And I cannot emphasize how important that is. Respect. To show respect for your son or daughter and to let them know that they are respected is so critical to their advancement. It really is a necessary thing and I believe we don't emphasize that enough. We don't emphasize it enough. We give it lip service, but it really comes down to, if you really think you can do it, I'm gonna let you try so you can show me, because I respect your ability to know what you can and cannot do. So it really is important, this parent had it. And he finally got home that day. He took a very circuitous route, but he got there. And she really um, felt that the training and the experience of traveling had opened his life so much. And of course, he came back as soon as everything was working again, and the schools in that area were reopened. The most, one of the most important stories to me in learning about traveling and in learning about individuals with disabilities, and boy did we learn a lot that day, were the young people who had hearing impairments. They were deaf. They went to a high school that was on 23rd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue. That high school drew from five boroughs. You don't hear all the information coming in is relies on your auditory ability. How do you get the information? You don't talk. 99 and 44 one hundredth percent of the people around you do not do sign language. You live in a borough outside of Manhattan. Subways are not going over bridges. They're not going through tunnels. 
We don't have buses that do that either. How do you get home? How do you communicate with your family? How does your family deal with the situation? And these young people, I, I remember a few in particular who lived in Brooklyn. They left. At the time, school was dismissed, I guess somewhere around 3 o'clock. And they walked home across the bridge. We did not teach them how to walk from Manhattan <laughs> to wherever they lived in Brooklyn. We don't teach that. That was not in an alternate route. It never entered anyone's head that this could be a necessity. How did they get information as to what to do? Who did they ask? How do you survive? How do you handle it? One of the skills that you teach and really became much more emphasized is your awareness and alertness to what is going on. These young people were superb. There's, if there's a Hall of Fame, they should be in it. I mean, mm -hmm. they were just incredible. Some did not get home till 9 o'clock at night. It was a long walk. It Very was long. a long walk, five or six hours. They followed crowds. They had learned in training to be sure to indicate, to show an ID that said they were deaf and that they would communicate in writing. And so, and to have paper and pencil with you so they could ask someone a direction. And a person could point, could gesture, could write. It was so impressive that the State United Teacher newspaper came down <laughs> to do an interview with these youngsters. There was a group of them, maybe a dozen, eight, eight to twelve, who had had to do that into the other boroughs or to upper Manhattan. And they had a whole big spread, two pages, of these young people talking about their experience. And their families sent them all back. It's so amazing. So just to be clear, the students that were in the midst of travel training that hadn't completed the course still had access to buses and yes. you right, and you activated those routes. The students that had graduated and were deemed travel trained all returned home individually as they were trained to do. Yeah. It's the ultimate test. It was, and this is why, as many negative feelings one has about 9-11, and you hear politicians in particular speak about this, it also demonstrated a triumph, a triumph of spirit, of will, of possibility, of handling something, and doing it well. New Yorkers and the country came together and were very supportive of each other and helpful to each other. These young people with disabilities and all of the adults out there who were traveling with disabilities 
they were part of this trial. They proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, yeah, I can handle it like you can. Something can happen, I can get home. I can handle it. There may be more difficulty for me. It may take me longer. There may be any other number of factors, but it could be with somebody who's young. But these folks really proved to all of us that the biggest obstacle is us. That given the opportunity, the training, the experience, the belief in oneself, and the knowledge that others believe in you, carries you a long way in getting something done. And that's what 9-11 did. You've, you've often said that training youth to be independent is much safer than just defaulting to, I'll take care of him, somebody will take care of him. You've also said that there are circumstances where you can't expect the police or fire department to help you. 9-11 is an example because they were beyond occupied. Um, I guess this is proof that everything you've been saying is true. I mean, many parents are frightened to let go and let their child take a risk like this. But if anything is proof that your theory works, this is it. Yeah, well, I think one of the biggest mistakes that is made is that belief that somebody will take care of. Now, agencies, schools, buildings, they all have a procedure for an emergency. In schools, and I'll say agencies, service provider agencies, where they have programs, you have fire drills. You practice. You have training for staff. You think a drill is training for the individuals. No, because there it is, the person who is in charge <laughs> is telling you what to do, what it is, where to stand, to hold on to the railing, going down to the steps, to do all of these things. In a real emergency, that person may be absent that day. They may have a panic and run scared. You don't know. They could be injured. There could be any given number of things. And you have to know, we don't teach what do you do. We don't allow something to happen and for someone to recognize, oh my, I have to do something about this. We don't go over with them what you should always have in emergency, what you don't take, and why you don't go back to get it. We just say no or yes. Follow us. I don't think that works in life. I think that the people who were alert to where the others were going when they found a way out had a better chance of getting out than those who waited for someone to say, that is Come the, with me. That is the truth. Now, I love your training motto, which seems to be, what do you do if? It's almost as though your lesson plan is looking for trouble. 
It is. <laughs> um, trouble is a double-edged sword, a good side and a bad side. A bad side is when trouble happens and you don't learn anything positive from it. Mm. The good side is, wow, what happened, but boy, what I learned out of it. Um, unless there is a real hazardous, dangerous, terrible situation like 9-11, most troublesome situations are situations. It, what occurs afterwards makes it positive or negative. And so in travel training, what one tries to do is to say, I'm going to let whatever happens, happen. If they miss their stop, you weren't pay attention. What happens if you don't pay attention? Okay, so you ride. You might ride for an hour on a bus <laughs> to the end of the line. And the bus driver will say, you have to get off. And the individual will turn and look at the trainer as if to say, what are you going to do? And the trainer will shrug their shoulders and say, it's on you. Because you've been teaching and practicing in the school. You have to ask. You have to do this. It is assuming the responsibility for self-actions and initiating them that is harder to teach. Everybody will recognize a stop. Everybody will learn to ring a bell. They'll learn all that, but that it is totally up to me. And if I don't, something will happen. And travel trainers don't like it, but they love it. <laughs> Especially in bad weather, because in bad weather, it will perhaps spur the student further. If they go past and start to walk, you let them walk until you have to say to them, mm -mm, it's hazardous, we don't want you wandering. If it happens a second time, if it happens a third time, the third time you say, I don't think you're ready to travel yet. You have to go on the school bus. They don't like that. However, they need an unpleasant consequence for not doing what they know how to do, and they have to learn how to initiate. An example of this is Lisi was being trained by Sharon. This was in the 1980s. Lisa went to school on the number seven line, a young woman with Down syndrome. At that time, um, they were, she would have been considered in the severe to moderate range of intellectual disability. And she came down the steps from the elevated to go through the gate. Pushes the gate. Sharon, the trainer, is watching her. Gate has a big chain on it. Very obvious. She pushes the gate, does it open. She turns and looks at Sharon. Nothing happens. She goes back to the gate. Nothing happens. This goes on for a while. Another train comes in, and she's standing there, and she's doing it, and she's looking at Sharon. 
And then she sees the people coming down the steps, looking at the gate, then going through the turnstile. Uh -huh. She turned around and went through the turnstile. Now, if Sharon had intervened and said, go through the turnstile, she would not have learned to look and see what is an alternative, who is getting it done, what do I do? Each of us does that when we're unsure. We watch to see what someone else does. So fundamentally, in travel training, what you want to do is to remove those things we taught that make the person be special and say, okay, you're ordinary. And what does an ordinary person do in this situation? So it's teaching not to be special, not to expect those special things, and to be ordinary. And boy, do they love just being an ordinary person. Wow. Now, even if that means suffering the consequences, because I remember a story you told me where a student would stand next to the edge waiting for the train, and they've been taught, don't stand next to the edge. So in a case like this, you'd cite a safety violation. What would happen next? Back on the school bus, and they have to be on the school bus for a while. Have to be on the school bus for a while, because if it's just a day or two, it's not long enough to hate. This, I remember that young man, he would come into the office every day, I promise, I promise. Hey, you promised us before, you have to wait. We have other people who are doing it right. When they come back in, they'll do it right because they had a very negative consequence. It wasn't someone hollering at them. Right. It wasn't someone saying one day. It was the reality of, I cannot do this. I have to be embarrassed, humiliated. My friends are traveling now. I can't travel with them. They know I was in program and now I'm back on the school bus. We don't want to do that to somebody, but that's life. If you fail, it is better to have that type of consequence than to be on the subway tracks. That's the truth. Now, what do you say to the parent that says, she can't help it. Um, yes, she can if she wants to. <laughs> uh, she has to bear the consequences. Yes, she can if she wants to. We, in travel training, we would say, this behavior is unsafe. When you go out with your daughter, I'll bet you go close to the platform edge. So. She is modeling your behavior. You have to watch your behavior. You have to tell her brothers and sisters who go out with her, but training will not continue with her. Travel training has had parents complain. That is okay. They can complain. They can go to the chancellor. They could go to the governor. But to put someone out there that you believe could be in danger of being hurt or killed is unconscionable. Of so we, so it was never done. So, Peggy, here's the question of the day. How many students with disabilities made it home independently and safely on 9-11? Hundreds. Were there any exceptions? 
a few whose parents came for them. So other than that, the ones that traveled independently all returned home safely. Absolutely. A absolutely. It was, that's what I mean, it was a triumph. It was <laughs> a triumph of being ordinary, just like everybody else out there, that you could go and do it and be relieved when you got home. It's so amazing. I mean, I think the parents must have gone through an emotional roller coaster like no other. It's almost unimaginable. So after this kind of event, did anything change? I did a survey. Uh, it was so amazing that you had to find out what was going on. So we created a survey and sent it out to the parents. And I would say over 50% responded. And that's an amazing number in itself. And actually, I brought a copy <laughs> of the results. I, I, like, I love to do this. And what were the major concerns about their sons or daughters getting home? It was the same as it was for their husbands, their mothers, their brothers, their other kids. Personal safety from additional attacks. Wow, no difference. That was the primary reason. More than 50% of the responses cited that. And I'll bet if you had done a survey with everybody else, it would have been the same. That's right. Totally the same. Then it was the confusion. But I think that a lot of people may have felt that also. Then it was the concern about transit routes. And again, that was probably common. Then a smaller percentage thought about getting lost. Some about not getting help. And that was not an issue. And then there were others like being too close to the World yeah. Trade Center. Right. And uh, some people said they had no additional concerns. It's just it's amazing. amazing. Did any parents say after this, um, this is too much. I don't want my child traveling independently. Put him back on the bus. Not one. Not one of the independent travelers went back on a school bus as a result of 9-11. It's actually hard to believe, but I also, in the survey, asked what specific parts of the travel trading program supported your confidence. And the majority thought learning an alternate route <laughs> and how to transfer the skills it's so true. on it, that was the thing that really made them. The other was all the work on problem solving. That was second. That there were so many things built in. And the third one really got us, but in all parent surveys I've done over the years, this one always shows up as one of the top rated. A daily note. During travel training, the trainer gives a daily note to the family. It's a small, like a large index card, handwritten. What we did today, what we're going to do tomorrow, how 
he or she did. That little note that probably details progress and problems is so important. It is so important to the parents that they always cite that as one of the things that gives them confidence in their youngster's ability, growing ability, to be out there. So it's something people have to think about in terms of communication. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be high tech. It has to be ongoing, simple, and consistent. That says what was done well and what needs to be improved. You don't try to sugarcoat it. You don't try to hide it. Your partners in providing a more free and independent life. It's beautiful. Um, you know, this story is a huge life lesson about what she, we should expect from ourselves and also from our youth with disabilities. What have we learned? Why not think they can? Why think they can? Why emphasize special needs? Why emphasize special ed? Why emphasize special programs? Why not emphasize we're people? What we have in common, that we all learn, we all have difficulties with learning some things. We all need opportunities. We all wish to express ourselves. Most of us, I can't say all to this, most of us want to be independent. We want to make our own choices. We want to make our decisions. Young children, as you watch them grow, are constantly exploring to see the limits to which they can safely do something. Right. If you are identified or classified as having a disability, that is denied you. So what I learned and what I talk about evermore since that day is we have to stop denying opportunities. You've, you've said before that it's the adults that give up, not the youth. Oh my goodness. Oh, they... The adults are the problem. <laughs> if I, the, those who love them, those who have dedicated their lives to working with them, those who are the educators providing the instruction are the giver-uppers. We don't have the persistence that the individual does. Lisi persisted in pushing the chain. Another example is Sergio, whose task that day was to purchase a token. There were tokens then. <laughs> and he had money in his pocket. He forgot when he was at the subway station. This was on video, each of these. And he tried to go through the turnstile. Of course, it didn't go. He tried again. It didn't go. He tried a third time. And he walked away. This is a young man with autism. And he was scratching his head and standing there. And you could see him for a good 15, 20 minutes, looking around, checking things out. Then he reached into his shirt pocket. 
I just head snapped up. And he walked over to the token booth and bought a token and then went straight through. How many service providers, parents, teachers, power professionals would wait and say the task for Sergio today is to be sure he checks everything. How often have we gone through our purses, emptied them, looking for something, emptied our pockets, done all this, walked back to where we were, come back. Do we let our young people, or do we assume when they do it, it's because they have a disability? We make that assumption and blame a disability rather than the fact they don't have a chance to explore and find out. Well, thank you for this empowering lesson. As always, Peggy, we appreciate your partnership and include so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, and I just want to remind any listeners that Peggy was one of our first interviews last school year, and she spoke on disability history. You don't have to miss out. You can find it in the Include um, Disability Inc. library. Until next time, see you then.